0: Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. So we're taking a break from our Family Matters sermon series to do a message that really could have been entitled People Matter. As we look at the sanctity of human life and what the Lord's Word has to say to that particular topic. And while the abortion numbers really are staggering... And while what is going on in our country, in our world, particularly for those who have no voice, literally and metaphorically speaking, the pre-born, is certainly alarming. I'm a baseball guy, and there's 162 games in a season, and you got to have the long view. And you have to also understand that it's my personal opinion that God is working through the pro-life movement in a number of ways. Because as high as the numbers of abortions are that are happening in this nation, you need to know that year over year, they're decreasing. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. And while we'd want to see them go away entirely, we also want to celebrate the wins that God has afforded us. There's also many reasons to believe that young people right now, not people within our legislatures and not people who are voting yet, but that young people right now are showing themselves to be what is perhaps the most pro-life generation ever. And now that's not the reason we're gathered here today, but I wanted to let you know just how things look from this non-expert with an internet connection. So I just wanted you to know what I'm seeing, what I'm sensing, and for you to be encouraged that I really do believe that God is on the move and that God is changing things and that we're in a different day and age. But we need to continue to pray. And most importantly, more than any of this stuff, more than all these statistics, we need to look to God's word to see what God has to say. We need to look for hope and help from the only one who can give lasting hope and lasting help. And that's not me, and that's not you, and that's not anyone in any legislative office or on Capitol Hill. But that is King Jesus. And so the reason we've gathered here today is to worship King Jesus and to hear from him. And so if I could encourage you to do one thing throughout the remainder of our time together, it's this. And I said this last year when I preached on it, 52 weeks ago today. Consider the following four-word question more than anything else. What should I do? What should I do? I think you'll miss out on what God has for us today if you think, what about them? Or what about the White House? Or what about Capitol Hill? Or what about our nation? Or anything like that. You need to think, what should I do? And that's what you should be thinking any Sunday. That's what you should be thinking anytime you open God's word. And it's a sad, sad time in our lives or in my life if I'm ever listening to the word of God preach, and the only application I have is who I can share this sermon with because it's really meant for them. Who I can share this message with because it's really gonna be helpful for them. We should always be looking to God's word for hope and help as individual ch- children of God. So when you're tempted to think of application outside of yourself, rein it in, rein it in, and ask yourself, or better yet, ask the Lord, what should I do? Hopefully you're already open to the gospel of Luke chapter 19. Would you stand if you're physically able in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Follow along silently as I read aloud Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 1. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so we've got a lot to cover today, and we're looking to God's Word for this important topic of the sanctity of human life. So let's get right to it. The first point, and something that I want to remind you of, or perhaps tell you for the first time ever, and that is this, human beings are unique from the rest of creation. Unique from day one was the theme at the March for Life this year. It's important for us to acknowledge again, or perhaps say for the very first time in your hearing, Of the uniqueness of women and men, boys and girls, young and old, born and pre-born, near and far, compared to the rest of every created thing. You'll see in your outline Genesis 1 verses 26 and following. God creates people in his image and likeness and that's unique to human beings alone. Verse 26 says, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Furthermore, God gave people dominion over the rest of creation. The next verse, Genesis 1 and verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hey, if there's a word that is super politically incorrect this day, it's got to be dominion, right? But it's biblically accurate. It's something that God has given men and women alone, human beings alone alone. God created human beings and gave them dominion over all his creation. Psalm 8, verses 6 and following says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so we as human beings, we as men and women, we are what you might say viceroys. Right, A viceroy is uh, someone who rules or has dominion, but only as a representative of another. And so our authority, the dominion that we have, is not ultimate because we represent Jesus Christ. Paul uses this picture in the New Testament when he's writing to the church at Corinth and he says, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 20. God makes his appeal through us. And so God works through us. God grants us dominion, but no Earthly authority is ultimate, and so we are unique because we have dominion and serve at the pleasure of King Jesus. But there's something else that I want you to know. I want you to see that God creates us in his own image and likeness. I want you to see that we have been given dominion over all of creation and that these things are unique to human beings and human beings alone. But keep your finger in the Gospel of Luke 19, flip over to Psalm chapter 8. I want to show you something in your Bible. Psalm chapter 8. Because God also says that we matter more than other created things. You say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, it actually it does for us. We're humans, right? We, we like that. So they, we matter more than the other things that God has created. We read this in Psalm 8, and we also read this in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of what? More value? than they a rhetorical question that Jesus asks and the answer is obviously yes we are of more value than birds why because god has created us that way but now take a look at psalm chapter uh, psalms 8 and look beginning in verse 1 and i want to call something to your attention that i found very very interesting as i was preparing for this sermon beginning in verse 1 o lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Then you have a verse, verse 5, that says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Something to that effect. If you read that literally or you had a more literal translation, do you know what you would read? Verse 5 would read, you have made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. It's kind of a big deal, right? Right? Speaking of mankind, you have made him little less than God. A distant second nonetheless. <laughs> but wow, what a way to put that. What a way to look at that. That we have been made a little less than God. And if you're a Holman Christian Standard Bible reader or a NASB, or you'll find that in your Bible. A little less than God? That's a big deal. There's not a single other piece of creation that is ever given a description remotely Close to that, not even close. We're made in God's image and likeness. We've been given dominion over all of God's creation. We certainly matter more, and we're a little less than God. But here's something else that I want you to see. Letter D in your outline God teaches us more than any other created thing. Job 35, verses 10 and following. But none says, Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Verse 11, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. I want to say because that's because we have brains and we have the ability to understand these things? Yeah, I feel like God created us with that, right? I think God could teach, you know, a wildebeest is everything that he's taught us and make them just as wise and just as relationally capable, but why doesn't he? Because he doesn't, because human beings matter more, because we've been created in his image and in his likeness. And that's by God's design. That's by God's decree. God teaches us more than any other created thing. This passage in Job speaks of the dignity of human life in terms of the wisdom that is entrusted to us and us alone, human beings alone. God chooses us who are created in his image, who matter more than the rest of his creation to the people, to be the people who are taught more than all other created things. We're entrusted with an awareness of God. And for those of us who are believers, we have the very message of hope, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is able to reconcile those who are lost and dying to their creator, God. And as we'll discuss later, it's this very message of hope, this message of salvation that is our best resource in advocating for those without any voice. Human beings are never just blobs of matter, ever. People always matter. And that's something that we need to cry out in this culture in which we live, that they're not just blobs of matter when they're in utero, and they're not just old and aging and useless blobs of matter when they're towards the end of their life. People always matter. People have value and dignity because of the way God created us. Psalm 139 verse 14 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God's word tells us our creation is not the result of things just clumping together and all of a sudden you have a human. Look again at the words fearfully, wonderfully. These are, this is unhurried. This is intentional. This is careful. Uh, look at 139 verses 15 and following in the Psalms. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That means before we could be seen, we were seen. That means before we could be known, we were known. Before we had a name, we had a name. That means before we had a plan, there was a plan. And that all at the result of our sovereign, gracious creator, God, who has instilled his image in every man, woman, boy, and child, and girl. I spoke with somebody in between the service who let me know that they were expecting and said that his wife was eight weeks along. That's great. I'm sure he found out, I don't know, maybe four weeks ago. And he was four weeks late to the party. God knew from the beginning Right when I found out that our that that my wife was expecting, we found out I don't know four weeks in, six weeks in. That's gr- and I'm we're excited and we're surprised and we're we're taken a taken aback, and God's like, yeah, bro, this is old news. <laughs> Knew this, planned this, not a big deal. I'm God. Because the Bible never speaks of a time when a person doesn't matter. God doesn't seem as concerned as our society is with viability or age or size as an indicator as to when humans created in his image have value. There's no mention of a time period when a person doesn't have God-given significance and dignity even when God is the only one who can see us, the only one who can know us, the only one who knows our number of days. And there's a clear, distinct category in which people find themselves among all of what God has been creating. It's that sacred beginning that informs our perspective on people, born and unborn, from the womb and the to-, to the tomb and everywhere in between. People are unique. They are special. They have dignity. But here's the thing. We learn of legislation being passed and we see the trend line of our culture. For example, in my home state of New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo, who, fun fact, attended the same unbelievably pro-life, pro-life Catholic high school I did, is leading the charge where now abortion on demand is more available and accessible than ever Before We learn of people in other bodies of legislation seeking to pass legislation in which a a baby who survives an abortion and is born alive may not have to be cared for by medical personnel who took an oath to do so if they and or the mother don't desire the child to be resuscitated. We learn of these things and so many more and we're reminded that ours really is a culture of death. Which we then remember didn't start with Roe versus Wade in 1973, but with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And everything that has transpired since then serves to remind us of the day that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5 and verse 12. And this is why, friends, this is why this is a gospel issue first and a legal issue Second, see, we didn't decide, hey, let's just dedicate one Sunday a year to politics. Let's dedicate one Sunday a year, just one. We're always preaching from the Bible. Let's just dedicate one Sunday a year to public policy and make sure that people, I mean, we'll, we'll start and close with prayer and we'll throw some Bible verses in, but let's really talk about public policy and the direction our culture is going. That's not the reason we're doing this. This is a gospel issue and that's not just a catchy phrase that we want to attach to the thing that we're most excited about. And I'll see if I can explain this to you uh, by taking you back to a very basic economic principle that you may remember from high school called supply and demand. And you say, okay, what does this have to do with the sanctity of human life? You've gone to third, Peter. This is not scriptural. Where are you going? What's going on? Well, I'll tell you. The legislation that is recently passed in New York is terrible and sad and drastically affects supply. Because you might say that now abortion is more accessible or more available to anybody who is seeking it. Uh, That it's more available on a timeline sequence as far as how old the baby is that now right up to the time of birth somebody would be able to seek and abortion, that an abortion can be given by someone who's not even necessarily a trained medical professional. You would say, my goodness, oh God in heaven, the supply of abortions have increased. And so if we get different legislation passed, whether it's in New York or in our country or whatever, if we overturn Roe v. Wade, which I hope and pray we do, that would drastically affect supply right that would drastically affect the availability the accessibility of people to what they see as a medical procedure called abortion and that would in a sense defend and promote the sanctity of human life and be a very good thing for the preborn that affects supply but you know what you can't legislate away demand do you know why that's a hard issue That's a mind issue. That's a worldview issue. And there's not a law that can save. There's not a law that can legislate away demand. We can legislate away accessibility, but have we really won, we as people who know and love the Savior, we as people who march for life but also march for eternal life, have we really won if we've just told people they need to go to a different country or a different state to get an abortion? We can legislate away supply. We can't legislate away demand. Because the only thing that changes the desires of people's heart and what they crave and what they worship is not a law and it's not a policy, but it's the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's not either or, but both and. We care about the supply and the demand, right? But we look to God to change people's hearts. We look to his word to impact people's lives To change what they want, perhaps just as God did for you. Where you can look back on your life and see how God has changed what you want, how much of what you want, what you value, what you prioritize, because God is growing you and changing you to be more like Him and less like yourself. And so here's what I would ask you to perhaps consider it's not either or, but it's both and. We care about supply and demand. And my question is this, how often, just think about it, how often do you have the chance to impact public policy, which deals with supply, which is important, and how often do you have the chance to impact someone's life with the gospel, which deals with demand? Which opportunity comes around more often for you? How often does the average Christian have the opportunity to vote Which deals with supply, and I hope you would vote pro life. And how often does the average Christian have the opportunity to show the love of Christ to someone which might influence demand? How often does the average Christian have their voice heard by their lawmakers? And I think that's important. I hope you call, I hope you write, I hope you march, I hope you protest, I hope you sign petitions. I do all those things. I'm just asking you to compare those opportunities with the number of opportunities you have to begin a gospel-focused relationship with someone or to show love and compassion to someone considering an abortion or to show love to someone who, who, no matter what syndrome comes attached to them or to show compassion to the person whose children are caught up in a foster care system or to show mercy to an orphan or a widow or a sojourner or whatever, whoever we come into contact with. Why? because all people, born and unborn, bear the image of God and are unique from day one and until the time the Lord sends them to eternity. And so it's not either or, but I just think so often since we hear about this and read about this and talk about this in the context of policy, public policy and politics, we think that's our way, that's our goal, that's the way to do this. And I'm not saying there's no place for that. Okay, I've been to the March for Life the last three years in a row. I'm not saying there's no place for that. I'm just saying I go to the March for Life one day a year. Isn't it a sad thing if that's the only thing I do for the unborn and I just wait 365 more days to do that again? Isn't it a sad thing if the only thing I do with the eternal life that I have and the hope of the gospel message that I have, the only thing I ever do To impact people's lives for this very important cause is to make sure that I vote appropriately. We don't put our hope in these things even though we work within this system. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. We put our hope in the good news of the gospel. We put our hope in Jesus Christ who says that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's the message that affects demand. Everybody seems angry. You might say, you seem a little angry. You're kind of sweaty. Yeah, well, it's been a weekend, brother, let me tell you. James 1 tells me that my anger will not be used to produce the righteousness of God. Are you familiar with that? I always think in my parenting, this is different, though. Yeah, this is different. It's really not. And it's not a sin to be angry. When you see things happening in this world that you know don't represent Christ's values, you should be angry. God gives you that anger as an alert. He does not give you that anger as an answer. And so if you think it's that anger that's going to bring about the righteousness of God, you are wrong. But you know what? it's way cooler to be angry than it is to be compassionate. Right? Just not as, not as cool to post the compassionate quote. It's just way cooler to, to post the angry one. Not as attractive and cool and sexy to be the compassionate person to be the angry person. But I'm telling you for a fact that this battle or any battle is not going to be won on the basis of anger but that the long-term impact that changes people's lives, that changes what people want, that gives them a heaven to gain because they have a hell to shun comes with compassion through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Each year I attend a conference called Evangelicals for Life in Washington, D.C., and it's scheduled to coincide with the March for Life. And I've gone three times. I plan to go again. It's a highlight of my year, um, two of those times, I've chosen to bring my son along, and uh, he would come to some conference sessions with me, and then hangs in the hotel, or I'm crazy enough to let him ride around the metro around D.C. by himself. But we participate in the March for Life together, which is probably for me one of the most meaningful experiences and coolest memories I've ever had as Peter Larufa, like as a as American, as a dad, as a Christian. It's, it's a really special thing. Justin would typically... Uh, Justin's the one I've, I've taken with me thus far. He's, he'll typically make a sign. So one year he made a sign and put some Bible verses on it and drew a picture of Yoda. <laughs> and said, judge me by my what? Judge me by my size, do you? Size matters what? Not. Quote from Star Wars. That got a lot of attention. People started a lot of cool conversations I take the sign that the conference gives me. Look like everybody else. Hold it up. He's up there coloring with Sharpies. Please don't ruin the hotel floor. Last time he uh, drew a picture of, I don't remember if it was Horton Hears a Who or just the cat in the hat, and says, a person's a person, no matter how small. Put that on there. Now that's not Scripture. But it's scriptural, right? Persons, we would agree with that. Reminds us of what we spoke of earlier that there's no size or age or any factor that gives someone personhood, but God and God alone who creates us in His image. He gives us the personhood that is ours from the womb to the tomb. And there's no status, no size, no nothing that, oh, now you matter. Wait a minute. How old? Wait a minute, what's the weight? Wait a minute, what's anything? Okay, as long as this box is checked, this person has dignity. As long as this has happened, this person has value. We'll care for you if... Okay, that's the other side. Ours is a side of pro-life, that we love people, that we know that human beings have dignity and value, and we don't have to say only if and then fill in the blank. So we can come alongside and say, yeah... The sign's actually accurate. A person's a person, no matter how small. Hey, speaking of small people, let's talk about Zacchaeus. You see what I did there? Look to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Let's just walk through what is happening here. There actually is more to that than me just saying that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So Luke chapter 19. Hey, by the way, I learned that song as an adult. That's really weird if you learn that song as an adult. I didn't grow up in a church that Sarah sang it to me. He's was like, oh, yeah, it goes like this. The like key is, was, and I'm just staring there in my 20s like this. Like, Where have you come from? How many of you know that song? Raise your hand you know that song. Yeah, see, so I'm in the minority, all right? Whatever. Luke chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, he, here's what's going on. He entered Jericho, he, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's entering Jericho so that they can avoid Samaria. Verse 2, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. See that term in verse 2, chief tax collector? You're not going to find that used anywhere else in the New Testament. The only time that that term is ever used to describe a tax collector. And that's what Zacchaeus was. He may have been a wee little man, but he was a big man on campus. Why? Because he was the chief tax collector, and he was at the top of the pyramid scheme. So he not only collected taxes, but got a cut from other people who collected taxes. That's who this guy was, okay? If there's anyone that you would have thought you have the right to dislike, it would be Zacchaeus. This is, nobody looks at Zacchaeus, oh, poor Zacchaeus, poor thing, bless his heart. That never happens, right? Woman at the well, you can feel compassion for her. You look back, on she's been in a bad way. Woman caught in adultery, you say, "Wow, I wonder what that was like." That was really sad. Look at how Jesus shows mercy. Zacchaeus abuses his power, extorts money out of people, encourages other people to extort more cuz he's going to have to take a cut, and then that's going to make other people have to take a, take more of a cut. This is a guy that you would have the right to dislike. Makes all the sense in the world. And so Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because he was small in stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed to a sycamore tree to see him, which I can relate to being the towering five foot nine that I am, in these shoes. So (laughs) it's, you know, I can picture kind of like I'm at a parade and, you know, I remember like when I was little or last year, if I wanted to like get in the front and make sure that I could see what was going on, you kind of run ahead and climb up onto a lamppost and kind of like hang off and look out and... This is like stuff Roger Patterson doesn't know how to deal with. He's never experienced this. He's never experienced. And so you kind of look out and you can see what's happening. This is what Zacchaeus is doing. What does the tree represent? Height, altitude, a, view, a, a place to have a view. And so Zacchaeus climbs into that tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he, Jesus, looked up to Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse seven says this when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a who is a sinner. What I want to call to your attention here is first point, verse seven. Jesus does not succumb to the social pressures or what I'll call identity politics of his particular tribe. He is like completely unaffected by what his particular group of people would want him to do. Uh, When I say identity politics, I'm referring to when people align their positions, perspectives, or responses with the group with which they identify and forget completely about truth and certainly forget about God's truth. When they just are following the crowd and thinking through, well, because I'm part of this religious group or this racial group or this socioeconomic group or because I'm white-collar, because I'm blue-collar, I think this. We believe this. And so birds of a feather tend to flock together and people stop thinking and just start following their own particular crowd. They don't think through moral values. They certainly don't think through godly values. And they forget about truth or reason their way away from truth and just need to follow their tribe and oppose everything that the other crowd or the other side believes because there's this fear that if I at all glance that way I'm going to be associated with everything they stand for if I all act a little bit like that I'm going to be associated with everything that they stand for and pastors wrestle with this right if I (laughs) preach about the unborn people will think I'm preaching about right-wing politics if I preach on loving the foreigner among us the sojourner people will associate me with the left and so identity politics win the day And that might be you, too. If you advocate for the unborn, well, that's not really cool, right? That's not something. That's like your parents' thing. And so you don't want to be associated with that. But if you talk compassionately about what you heard is happening elsewhere, far away, in another country or at the border, well, people are going to think that they now know everything about you and your voting record and how you feel about every single issue because you're praying for people and you feel bad for them. And so you don't want to say that. And so what do you do? One of two things happen. You shut up. You don't talk about it. You become this, like, silent, secret prayer you pray, don't let anybody see, that's why God gave you a prayer closet, it's for times like these. And you pray, or you most likely just kind of follow the crowd and give into to the group think and the group speak. Because that's just the easiest thing to do. Jesus did neither. Neither. The crowd grumbles amongst themselves about what Jesus was doing. And that Greek word used there for grumble is intense. It's an onomatopoeic verb. So the grumble is like saying, you know, bees are buzzing. It's to give us the, the idea of what's actually happening. You couldn't hear what the crowd necessarily was saying, but if you showed up at that moment, you would know, boom, I don't know what's going on, but there's a lot of people here who aren't happy. I can't know exactly what just happened, but whoa, the tension is thick. I could cut it with a knife. This is not cool. This was intense disapproval. But you know what Jesus? Unaffected. Undeterred. Not distracted. Why? Because Jesus is focused and is unbelievably, profoundly compassionate. And he sees Zacchaeus, watch this, as the person he is instead of the stigma that's attached to him. Remember... This is someone you really, if you're in your right mind, you should dislike. Every right to ignore. And Jesus just doesn't care. And yet again, on another hand, he really cares. And looks to Zacchaeus and calls him down. And he doesn't care about the stigma that's attached to him. He doesn't care about what others will think, about the fact that people within his tribe will grumble. He doesn't care. He cares about the person. So he's not going to withhold compassion from someone because of the groupthink or the group speech of the day. And why? Because Jesus cares more about people than popularity. And Jesus cares more about people than the policies of his day. He sees through all the muck and mire of all the grumbling and all the groupthink. And he knows why he has come to earth, which he ends that passage with, right? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his focus. That's what he is laser-like focused on and sees Zacchaeus as someone who is in need of compassion. A person's a person. What? No matter how small. And Zacchaeus knows that Jesus is here. He's climbed into a tree. And thankfully, Jesus sees him as a person and says, a person's a person, tax collectors and all. Swimming against the grain of his culture. What does this have to do with the sanctity of human birth? Simply this. You need to understand that the Bible displays something more, not less, but more than the sanctity of human birth. It speaks of the sanctity of human life. From the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And a truly biblically grounded pro-birth ethic will lead to a truly biblically grounded pro-life ethic seeing that people are people no matter how small and people are people, tax collectors and all. That's what it means to be pro-life. It means we care about people who are born and unborn. Now, I need to hearken you back to how I started this message because some of you are right, like you're right here, You're about to go, I can see it, you're about to go political on me. You're about to go policy on me. And if you do that, you're going to miss the point. And you're just going to, I mean, you just could go home and get on social media in the comfort of your own chair and just start looking through everyone who's an expert on every political issue because they have an internet connection. Like, you could do that if you want. We're not talking about policy. We're talking about what? People. We're not talking about popularity. We're talking about people. And so, right, when you're tempted to think that just because we talk about people, that means we're associated with everything on that side, that would be unwise. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus stayed focused on the matter, focused on compassion, always saw people as people and pursued them regardless of what the crowd said, regardless of the grumbling, and stayed focused on the reason that he came. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. That Dr. Seuss line, right? Person's a person, no matter how small that's true. And that's like not life-giving or hope-filled at all for the post-abortive woman. Oh, the or the post-abortive man, a man who is an accomplice to, to some degree to an abortion. See, God's word is always true and his truth is always good and also sometimes very, very hard. I've experienced that in counseling situations if I'm counseling you know, the elderly. Where they're leaning in and they're embracing biblical truths and loving it. But at the same time wishing they could have learned this earlier in life. And so they wrestle with the hope of the word of God and the guilt of the would have, could have, should have. And the life-giving truth of Christ and the self-condemnation because they just didn't know. And just couldn't apply and they are in a bad way back then. And so the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And they know there is therefore now no condemnation. But they look back and say, oh wretched man that I am. Romans 8, verse 7, back and forth, back and forth. And it's a fairly constant battle to remember the gospel, the hope of Christ, their identity in Christ versus the flesh, remembering that they are not what they did, but they are identified because of what Christ did. That's a battle, and that's really hard, and that's what happens when a post-abortive woman walks by our children's ministry. And that's what happens when a post-abortive man knows he's the father of three on Father's Day gift, but really should have been the father of four. And pro-birth doesn't help them, but pro-life does. Pro-birth doesn't help them, but pro-life does because every person, including the post-abortive among us, is made in the image of God and can find hope and help in Christ. And so the same pro-birth person who says, a person's a person no matter how small, can make the shift from pro-birth to pro-life and say a person's a person no matter how far they fall. Why? Because personhood is not based on what they did, but based on the intrinsic value that God has given them. But if all we focus on, and we should focus on, but if we focus on those in utero, the preborn, exclusively, we're probably more pro-birth than we are truly pro-life. And a pro-birth ethic that is rooted in Scripture would lead us to do what Jesus does and show compassion to people both inside and outside of the womb. Sarah and I lost Justin in Old Navy once. Not recently, he's 15, but like when he was, I think he was about three. We lost him for about two minutes. Have you ever been there? Feels like nine hours. I thought she had him, she thought I had him. We don't see him. We look around for him for 30 seconds. We don't, can't find him. My heart sinks into my stomach. And I feel the beating down here. And now we're calling after him and he doesn't respond. Okay, now another 30 seconds has passed. So we walk to the front of the store. Maybe he ran outside. I've totally got him sold into some slave circle. Like it's gone. That's it. And then all of a sudden, the store clerk comes walking out of the back room. There's This little pudgy kid holding a hanger and saying, who's this little guy? And he's giving me that Jesus in the temple look like, did you not know I would not be about my three-year-old business? (laughs) i got a hanger. I'm three. There's a door. I've got got things to do. Maybe some of the scariest few minutes of my life. And you're thrilled, but you want to strangle him, and you want to hug him, but you're like, "Uh," like... And so I read about children being separated from parents at the border. Don't go policy. (laughs) And I think, man, that's hard. I don't think that because I'm a citizen. I think that because I'm a dad. Because I'm a person. Because they've been separated from their children for, I don't know how long, but I'm going to go with longer than two minutes. And so because I'm a person and they're people, that makes me sad. Does it make you sad? Or do you need to know their story? Do they need to earn your compassion? Why were they there? What were they doing? I don't know, guys. I don't know. I'm not an immigration expert. I dare say probably you aren't either. But I'm a person, and they're a person, and a person's a person both sides of the wall. And so that affects how I pray. Should we let him in? Should we not let him in? Should we detain him? Are there enough beds? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm a pastor in the border state of Kentucky. Went to Rabbit Hash the other day. Saw no one swimming over from Rising Sun. Just, just not happening, not a part of my life. But a person's a person. Because I believe that the Bible teaches the sanctity of human what? What? Life. I care about the unborn and the born. That has nothing to do with my voting record. It just means I'm really, really sad about that. Are you scared to be sad about that because then you're more like the others? My son, this is like a Justin sermon, my son broke his hand recently. Broke his pinky, but on a growth plate, just in time for baseball tryouts. And so we're sitting in, a, we're sitting in an urgent care, and a lady comes in to take his vitals, the nurse, and to ask what happened, and she's wearing a hijab, that Muslim head covering thing. I jump all, that's kind of my thing, like starting conversations with people in head coverings. I do it, I, it's probably creepy on some level, but I'm doing it for the gospel. I'm trying to show the love of Christ. And I'm like, oh, wow, if my daughter was with me, she would probably comment on your hijab. She says, well, you should probably get her one. I said, oh, that's a first. I've never been told that. I don't even know where. But, okay. <laughs> Just asked, so I said, what are you? I said, oh, how long have you, how long have you been here? And she said, I don't know, nine years or something like that. Said, so, oh, okay, cool." I said, "How's it? How's it been?" I've started doing this. I said, "How's it been?" She said, "Nice." I've started doing this. Yeah. And she said, "I'm not with my son, my adult son." Long story. I don't have the time to tell you, that, but long story of where the whole family came over. They've been here a long time. She has an adult, uh, several adult children, and just hard to be separated. He was in going to a school in another country and he had a visa to come over but now it's being delayed and doesn't really know why and it's just hard. She's scared to leave because she doesn't know if she gets back. It's just, it's just really hard. And I said, wow, that's, that's really, really hard. I said, Can I, I'm going to pray that you guys are reunited. I didn't do an in-depth investigation as to what their background was, if he belongs here, I think, yeah, I think God knows that. I don't think he needs me to bring that data to him. But it's sad because a person's a person, Muslims and all. And because I'm more than just pro-birth, I'm pro-life. And because God cares about people. And a person's a person, disabilities and all. And a person's a person, elderly and all. And a person's a person, you fill in the blank and all. A person's a person. And our hearts should be stirred with compassion toward people. Not if, just compassion toward people. Because that compassion, which is rooted in the life-changing message of the gospel, is what will impact what people want and what people think. And hopefully we would represent something more than just life on earth, but life in heaven. Praise be the Lord. What about you? Who is it that you have trouble loving now that they're born? Right? Totally would have been for them if they were in utero. <laughs> would have stuck up for them. But now they're born, and now they're whatever form of chief tax collector you can think of. Who is it that you have every reason to dislike, maybe even keep your distance from, maybe even tell others how bad they are, but probably should show compassion towards because they're also created in the image of God? friends loving people in this way will never be popular ever standing up for the unborn not going to be popular showing compassion to people that the rest of your circle thinks you shouldn't show compassion towards and now they're going to associate you with another side it's not going to be cool jesus didn't care i don't think you should either i don't think i should either And I think I should be motivated by the compassion that has been shown me. Because you know what occurred to me as I preached this message? God had every reason to dislike me. That I'm the Zacchaeus in God's eyes. That God had every reason to give me the judgment I deserved. To lump me together with the sin that I am. To send me to the hell that I've merited. But like Paul says, but I obtained what? Mercy. Mercy because of Jesus Christ. And so let's be people who consistently show mercy and grace. That our speech would be seasoned with it. That our advocacy efforts would be affected by it. That our voting record would be impacted by it. And that it would all be for the glory of God. Because of the love, compassion, and mercy we've been shown. Because a person's a person, and may God bless us all. Father, we come before you uh, confused, sad, with a wide variety of emotions and a desire to please you. And we come before you like kids. That's who we are, we're kids looking up to their daddy, saying, I don't know what to do. Would you help us to take a step? We'd be foolish to believe that it's the same for each and every one of us, but would you show us what one step would you call us to take individually? Which way should I walk? What should I do? How can I please you? Because you've blessed me with life, and that I have it abundantly in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.